Open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians. We're back in 2 Thessalonians. The title this morning, It's About Time. And, and um, hopefully you've picked up in, in this series that um, one of my main goals is to help us as a church. But let me put it this way. Oftentimes, um, preaching can, can take the place of your own personal study. And, and while preaching is biblical, preaching is important uh, and, and plays an important role, it can never replace your personal study. So I'm hoping and praying that one of the things I do as I preach, as I teach, it, not just by modeling, but by directly helping you to better interpret the word for yourself. And, and if you've heard nothing else, hopefully you've heard this, that, that the Bible is sufficient and the Bible is clear. You can understand it. You can read it and you can understand it. Now, there are some difficult parts, to be sure, but you can do it. And, and I'm going to encourage you to do that. I'm going to give you some resources, hopefully this morning, uh, to do that. Um, so, Second Thessalonians, we're going to start in chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is probably the most uh, debated or controversial chapter in, in both of these letters to, to, to the church in Thessalonica. Um, and so what we're going to do is, is we're going to do a, a chapter two trilogy. Uh, we're going to do we're going to spend three weeks in chapter two because chapter two is so is packed so tightly um, that, that it's going to require some time to unpack it. And I think that as we do that, as we unpack it, it, it won't be as foreboding or formidable as it as it seems at first. OK, um, so. Uh, let me let me review kind of an outline to kind of get us back into Second Thessalonians. Here's a real easy outline for Second Thessalonians. Chapter one is comfort. If you remember, we know chapter one. He's comforting them because they uh, were uh, in the midst of um, intense persecution, and he he wrote to comfort them by saying that God was going to intervene and He was going to bring them relief. So chapter one is comfort. Chapter 2 is clarification. They, as you'll see here in a minute, they had a misunderstanding about the Lord's coming. And so he, written this, he wrote this chapter, what we now call a chapter, this portion of his letter, to clarify the coming of the Lord. So we have comfort, chapter 1, chapter 2 is clarification. And then we get, eventually get to chapter 3, it's going to be correction. He's going to correct uh, some behavior and one specific kind of behavior. So it's a real simple outline. Comfort, clarification, and correction. Um, keep your marker here, and we're going to look at our outline at, in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 um, is in itself uh, a highly debated portion of Scripture, although, again, if, if you approach it with some basic hermeneutical principles is not really that, that difficult. But in Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus is leaving the temple complex, and he was going away, verse 1, and his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you, uh, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? So, circle when, or highlight when. When will these things be? And what? Circle what? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This is a, this is a good outline for any biblical text, but especially biblical texts that are predictive in nature. So, whenever you come across... Uh, a, a what I call a predictive text, a text that is predicting something in the future, you will always have these two elements. You'll always have a time element, which is the when, they ask him the when question, when will these things be? And then you'll have a what question, or a, a what aspect. In other words, the content, the signs. And so that is what we're going to look at in Second Thessalonians, those two things. The time, 
and the what. The when and the what. So this today, we're going to talk about the when. Now, here's what's going to happen. At the end of this sermon, you're going to say, but how does it apply to me? What do I apply? How do I apply? There's going to be nothing for you to apply this, this today. Okay, so <laughs> you just relax. Because we've got to unpack this a little bit. When we get done with all two or three parts, then we will apply it. Does that make sense? So I want to, I want to reduce your expectations this morning <laughs> from, from a, a, a something that's going to be really applicable that I go, you know, go put into, put into practice. You're, it's not going to be one of those sermons. But it, I think it's going to be vitally important and hopefully edifying nonetheless. So today we're going to look at the when. And that's why I said this is, it's about time. How important time signatures are, what I call time signatures are in the Bible, particularly as it relates to texts that are predictive. And in fact, this is probably the most, one of the most overlooked aspects of interpretation is time. As I've said before, the Bible was not written to you. The Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written, what? To the church in, in this, to Thessalonica. But the Bible, all of the Bible, was written for us. First Corinthians tells us that. <laughs> all these things were written to them so that you would be able to learn and, and, to, and to apply and, and to do those and, and to avoid the things that they did and, and to apply the right kinds of things. So we need to understand, first of all, what did he say to them? And time signatures are so important, um, especially in what I call prediction texts, texts that have some kind of predictive nature in them. And by the way, they are very frequent in the New Testament. I'm hoping that as we go over Second Thessalonians today, that it'll be like when you buy a new car. Remember when you get a new car? Suddenly you do what? You see that car everywhere. Hopefully, hopefully today when we go over this time signature, as, as you're reading through the Bible, you will become more aware of how many times the, the, the Bible does indicate certain time signatures and how important they are. Again, one of the most overlooked aspects of interpretation. Now, this week, or I guess it was two weeks ago, I was listening to a sermon by a famous preacher, and he was preaching in Luke, 20, in Luke 21. And this is important. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21 is a parallel passage to Matthew 24. And he was preaching, Luke 21, he was preaching verses 25 through 28. So turn to 25 and 28. Let me show you initially just right off the bat how important time signatures are. And, and the when, answering the when question is. Luke 21, verse 25. And there will be signs, and, and this is, he picked up the sermon. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People feigning with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And, he, and, and he's preached that text, and that text only. And here's the danger in preaching a small portion of, of, uh, of the Bible. When you read that, when I was reading that, when you read that, what, did, what, what came to your mind? What were you thinking was going on? What do, what do you think it's referring to? Wow, the second coming. The stars are falling out of the sky, and you know Jesus is coming in a cloud, and, and there, there's cosmic chaos, and, and all of these things that the world has come to an end. But there's a... There's a time signature here, and then there's a time signature in the context. Look down with me at verse 29. And he told him this parable. After, he, after he, Jesus has told him all these predictive things, he told him, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As, they, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, also, so he's using an analogy of a fig tree. Now, some, we, have, we have some farmers in here. We have some farmers in here. When you plant a seed and it starts growing, you can speak of in terms of very soon we will have a harvest. Now, what does it mean to say the harvest is near or soon? Two years from now? <laughs> Maybe. No, the, 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 it's a limited time that... that 
and this is the, the example he said. He says, just like a fig tree blossoms bud, you expect buds, you expect that summer is near. You're not expecting the summer to be 15 years away or 20 years or 2,000 years away. He's saying, just as you expect something happening, the summer comes very near, so also when you see these things taking place, what are these things? Verses 25 through 28, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. So we have two texts, two verses that talk about time, that give us a when. He's saying, none of the, all of these things, this generation will not take place until all these things happen. He completely ignored that. And that's vitally important for understanding the text. Now, with that said, come back to 2 Thessalonians because we have a time signature, a time text in this as well. I'm going to read it, and I want you to think to yourself, where, is the, where are the verses that indicate some kind of time? Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, it will, he will, it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless, none will, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth uh, and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned, who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness." There are two verses, two primary verses that indicate that, that are going to be vitally important for, for interpreting the rest of this passage. Anybody pick up on one or two? Look at me at verse 6. What does verse 6 say? You know what is restraining him. What? Now. Now, when is that now? Is that now now? No, now... Is is do you know you know what now means in Greek? Now. It's an adverb. It means now. When when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, who he who and who is the he? Who is the he? The man of lawlessness. And he says what about the man of lawlessness? He is being restrained now. Now being when Paul was writing. Do you see how important? The time te- that this time element is. I, I, I can't tell you, nearly every study Bible I have, every commentary I looked at, completely ignores this very important aspect. You know what they pick up on? They pick up on the gender of the restrainer. Because they say in one verse it is he who restrains, in another verse it's it who restrains. And they wax eloquent on the nature of the restrainer or the nature of the restraining. That's important. But really, it, 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 if you look at the when, it answers a lot of the what questions. Because Paul said he was being, rest- whoever he was, and we're going to get into that in the coming weeks, whoever he was, he was being restrained then, because we're not part of that, then, now. Do you see, that? Do you see how important that is? You know what's restraining him now, which means what? He was alive then. Unless, of course, we want to say that he's 2,000 years old. Now, you don't have to go to seminary to, 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 to learn this. 
you know what is restraining him now. Also, he says to them what? They knew who he was. Okay. Now we're going to get into we're going to get into who I think he was later on, um, but this is a very important aspect of interpretation, particularly in prediction texts. That most time we just get swept right over because see we have our we have our traditions and we have our what we used to believe and 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 we we have a tendency not to see things that are actually in the text. He says again, verse six: You know what is restraining him now. Time texts are very important in the New Testament. In fact, let's look at some others. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at a couple of these verses in in more detail when we talk about his coming. But in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 is he's sending out his 12 apostles, so he's giving them instructions. By the way, uh, jot these notes down and you can wrestle with it yourself. Okay, you can wrestle with these issues yourself. I don't know how you explain away now. Also, 1023, he's he's speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking to us. He's speaking for us, but he's not speaking to us. He's talking to his disciples. Look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. We saw that over and over in the book of Acts, didn't we? When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What is that? What did he just say? What did he just say? This is Jesus, and he makes a prediction. And the prediction is what? Before you go through all the towns, before you, before you share the gospel in all the towns in Israel, Josephus claims that at this time there was approximately 204 towns in Israel. Whatever. He said, before you go through all the towns, what's going to happen? He's going to come. Now, you know what, you know what the stance of a skeptic says at this point? How can those both be true? If... if He's going to come before the disciples, the, the 12 disciples, went to all the towns of Israel. How can they both be true? Let, 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 me, let me change our thinking on this. If we believe this is the word of God, how can they not both be true? You see, I'm, I'm fearful that in the evangelical church, when it comes to interpretation, we have our mind set on what we, what we believe and what we think the Bible teaches. And so when we come to these kinds of texts, we try to explain them away, not explain them. Instead of trying to say from a stance of faith, saying this is the word of God, how can they not both be true? Instead of saying, how can they both be true? So what happens is the the, the interpreter comes and says, well, those both can't be true. So then I have to choose the lesser of two evils. Either he he didn't come (laughs) or they did, in fact, go to all the towns but neither one of those are acceptable because what does Deuteronomy 18 say about prophecy? If any prophet makes a prediction or prophecy and it doesn't come true, they are a false prophet. Matthew 16. Again, these are, these are not the only ones. Again, I think that you're going to start seeing these over and over again. Now, these are not... These are not... It's going to happen on Tuesday... April 15th type time text, but they give us, they, what they do is they limit and they govern the time period in which the, 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 the speaker or the writer is, is, is talking about. Matthew 16, verse 24, who is he talking to? Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What does that sound like? Sounds like the second, what we call the second coming. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Read that again. He says, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Now, what's the time element here? It's His coming had to be what? Had to be far enough away that some or many of them will be dead. And some will still be alive. Does that make sense? In other words, he says, there are some here who will still be alive when you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he's talking to his disciples. So the head, that, that, this event had to be far enough away that some or many, if not most of them, would be dead, but some of them would still be alive. Because, see, some people say this. They say, well, look in verse, if you look at verse 17, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And they just saying the fulfillment of that was the transfiguration. What's the problem with saying the transfiguration, which happened six days later, later was a fulfillment of this prediction? It means that most of them or many of them would, would be dead within six days. See, see, important in terms of interpretation. Now, if, if, if you have a belief and you're comfortable with that, you, don't wanna, you, don't, you really don't want to deal with any of it, then that's fine. But if you want to really look at the text, what does the text really say? Time signatures are so important to interpretation. Um, Romans 16.20. Romans 16.20. Final instructions and greetings to the church in Rome. He says, um, verse 19, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When was he going to crush Satan under his feet? When was he going to crush Satan under their feet? Soon. You know what that means in Greek? Soon. If I was coming to your house and you, call, and, and you called me and said, hey, are you coming? I said, yeah, I'll be there soon. What's your expectation? Just a little bit. Maybe not five minutes. Maybe not ten. But, but you know, it, it is a, it is a, it's not a real precise term, but you wouldn't expect me two years later or 2,000 years later, right? Soon means within a within a, a nearness of time. So so crushing Satan under their feet couldn't be something two thousand years in their future. Number one, it wouldn't mean anything to them. But far enough away that it wasn't going to happen right away. It was going to be soon. And instead of saying, Well, they both can't be true, we, we say from a standpoint of faith is how can they not both be true? Okay, um, well, let's, let's, let's do James 5, 7. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Does that mean 2,000 years from them? Why would, he, why would he ask them to be patient for the coming of the Lord if it was so far in their future that there's no way they could possibly understand what he was talking about? Because he says... In fact, it was at hand. It was near. I think some of our translations even say that, right? They say the coming of the Lord is near. Um, Verse 8, you also be patient. Okay, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another so that you not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What what does that communicate? What metaphor does that communicate? He is near. First uh, Peter four. Turn to First Peter. Verse seven. First Peter four seven. The end of all things is near. 
Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, the end of all things was what? Near. Not far. Near. Turn to Revelation. Again, one of the most overlooked aspects of the book of Revelation is found in chapter 1, the first three verses. The revelation of Jesus Christ. By the way, everybody knows my pet peeve, right? It's not revelations. It's revelation. One revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, about what? You can say it. It's in the Bible. You can say it. You, it it's okay. The things that what must? What? Soon. What does that mean in the Greek? Soon. What is Revelation about? Things that must soon take place. Soon take place to who? Or for who? Well, the seven churches in Asia, which, which the letter is written to. Okay, let, in fact, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear who keep what is written in it, for the time is... What? Near. Time, what, what is near? The, the things recorded. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he writes to the seven churches in Asia, and the book of Revelation was going to talk about things that what? That were going to happen soon. Not soon, 2,000 years later, but soon to them. Turn... Bookend. Actually, we'll go to chapter three. Go to Revelation chapter three. To the church in Philadelphia. It says, "Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world." Now, the world there is oikomene, and this means inhabited earth. Uh, he's not talking about. He's. Not, I don't think. Doctor Cooley, I don't think Peru's limit is included in this verse. Not not then. I don't even think he knew about Peru. We do now. I mean, the difference between interpretation and application, we need to keep those two things separate. Said, but he said, I will keep you from the hour of trial that has come upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Now, let me tell you how, again, the stance of faith says what? I'm going to take God at his word. The stance of a skeptic says, well, it can't be that. So I'm going, to, I'm going to make soon mean something else. Soon means that it could happen at any time. It could be now. It could be a million years from now. That, that makes me feel better about this text. The only problem with that is, what does soon mean? Soon. Let's use Greek because that's the, that's the big thing. As long as, you, as long as you say what it means in Greek. You know what it means in Greek? Soon. You know how the Greeks understood this term? Soon. Listen, we, 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 we have to approach the Bible from faith. Not try to explain it away, but to try to explain it. And there's a huge difference. Because it may not fit what you've always been taught or what you've always believed. Remember we talked about unexamined assumptions and untested traditions. You've got to deal with these time texts. And one of the ways we don't deal with this, we don't deal with our discomfort by saying, well, I'm going to change what soon means. In fact, that preacher that I was talking about in 21, he said, well, these events, that, or when it says this generation will not take will not pass away until these things happen, that has to be talking about the generation that's alive who sees these things because otherwise it, but they both can't be true. I can't believe that out of our mouth, out of an evangelical pastor's mouth, say that these things both can't be true. Again, get it in. How can they not both be true? No, we're not talking about contradictions. Obviously, the Bible never contradicts itself. We're talking about conundrums, things that maybe we can't explain. But this is what faith is about. Do you think that when Abraham, when, when God said, okay, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one I promised that you'd have, and I want you to take him, I want you to sacrifice him, I want you to kill him. 
I want you to, 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 to cut his throat, and I want you to put him on a sacrifice. You know what Abraham didn't say? He said, well, God, wait a minute. I don't understand that. That's not consistent with where you are. That's not consistent with what your word is, and you need to explain this to me. Or maybe maybe really don't mean sacrifice. Maybe that word really doesn't mean sacrifice. It just means willing to sacrifice. What did Abraham do? Okay. I don't understand it. It seems odd to me. I can't explain it, but I'm going to believe it by faith. He didn't say, okay, God, you're going to have to explain this to me. What did he do? He took what he did understand at that time, and he believed him by faith. And then what did God do later on? Provide. I'm afraid that the reason why so often the Bible remains a locked book to many of us is because we, we, we want to have every interpretive question ironed out, every interpretive question answered before we'll believe it. And so in order to make ourselves comfortable, we want to change it and alter it and adapt it. And then I feel better. Then I accept it. And I'm suggesting this. That's not faith. That is not what God expects us to do with his word. Second Thessalonians. We could, book end of Re- Revelation ends the same way it starts. Second, let's get back to Second Thessalonians. Six and seven are really the, the, the provide the, the governing and the, they limit the rest of the options in this chapter. If in fact verse six is true when he says, "I know what is restraining him," he is a person. This is a male pronoun. This is a man. We know what is. We don't know. What the nature of what was restraining him, but we do know he was alive then. That's clear. And I challenge anybody to tell me how it's not clear. You know what's restraining him now. And in fact, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness. Now, mystery was something that was a truth that was hidden and being hidden for a place of time, but then would be revealed. So in other words, he's saying the mystery of lawlessness, that there was a... There, there was a, I guess you could say, a, a um, environment of lawlessness that was already present. Waiting for the man of lawlessness to be revealed. And in fact, he was being revealed then. So that limits who the man of lawlessness could have been or could be. You see, these are important it doesn't tell us who he was. It doesn't do that. But it does limit as to who he, who he can't be. So, before we move any further in chapter 2, we had to deal with these time texts. These govern, these limit, these set boundaries for the rest of our, 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 our interpretation of chapter 2. Now, what are the what's of chapter 2? Remember, the disciples asked, when will this happen and what will be the sign? What are the what's? Well, I've just listed them. The what is, what is the coming of the Lord? What is the coming of the Lord? Remember when we did our study on on day of the Lord? Does anybody remember what our conclusion was from our, our brief biblical study of the day of the Lord? Was the day of the Lord always referred to the second coming? No, what 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 was it? Yeah. It was, it, it was not talking about necessarily a literal 24-hour period, but it was, it was a manifestation of God's judgment. And there are many different days of the Lord that we see in the Bible. We see them in the Old Testament. We see them in the New Testament. In fact, within Thessalonians, we see different usages of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a phrase that was used to, de- to describe it, a manifestation of God when he brought judgment, usually using a foreign army. If you remember what we did in the Old Testament. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. We don't let our commentaries interpret. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. There's a place for commentaries, but guys, we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Day of the Lord, we already looked at that. Apostasy. Now, this is interesting. We get there. This is what we call a transliteration. Anybody know what a transliteration is? you, You linguists. What's a translation? Let's start there. What's translation? You translate the meaning of a word in one language to the meaning of a word in another language. What's transliteration? You don't translate meaning. You just, uh, you just go letter for letter. So 
And A in Greek, what's the A in English? O in Greek, what's the O in English? This is one of the rare times in, in, in our, most of our translations, if you have apostasy in your translation, they've tr- they haven't translated that, they've transliterated that. Another classic one in our Bibles is baptism. To baptize, that's not a translation. That's a transliteration. It's from the Greek baptizo. You just take the Greek letters and, and assign the English letters to them. You don't tra- they don't translate that. Baptizo means to immerse, to dip. This is a transliteration. Apostasia is in the Greek. So the question is, how is this word used? That's not, that's not a translation, that's transliteration. We're going to look at that. Because normally when we think of apostasy, what do we think of? Yeah, we think of doctrine or some kind of spirit, yeah, some kind of spiritual compromise. We know we're going to look at that. Obviously, the big what in this text is the man of lawlessness. Who was the man of lawlessness? Some say he's, a, he's some future antichrist. That's why the time texts are so important. Paul said he was alive then. Okay? The temple. What does the man of lawlessness do? Look with me again. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God. This is kind of a time text too. What is he saying? Is existing at the time of the man of lawlessness. The temple. Now, this is why some people say, well, the temple must be rebuilt. There's going to be a rebuilt temple. Because in order for this to be true, there has to be a rebuilt temple. Because you know there's not a temple now. We're going to look at that. How does the time texts, how do these time signatures limit the interpretation of whether this is a, 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 the, the, the pre-70 A.D. temple or a rebuilt temple? Uh, he goes on to talk about verses, verse 9. The coming law is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. These are all the what's of the, of the text that we're going to look at uh, and a great deal of debate and disagreement over these things, but really the when resolves much of that. What do we, how, how do we wrap this up? How does this time signature uh, affect the interpretation of this text? Verses 6 and 7 rule out the future. Rule out our present day, certainly our future. It places the man of lawlessness and all of the what's in, in, the, in the context of the writing when Paul wrote to them. In this text, or I guess we could say in this letter to the church in Thessalonica, if this letter could only have a meaning, if it actually only had reference to the far distant future, it, let's say it is some Antichrist, this political figure that, that, that is going to bring world peace and is going to make a covenant with Israel for three and a half years and then three and a half years in he's going to violate the covenant and turn on them and, and then we have the battle of Armageddon. We have all this. If all of this is what he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6 through 7, do you think that the average person in the church of Thessalonica believed that, understood that? Why? What do you think they understood it? It's saying in other words, guys, if Paul, Paul certainly expected them to draw conclusions for their own time and circumstances. In other words, this passage was not intended to unveil secrets of a far distant time. It would have been completely unintelligible. At best, it would have been unintelligible to them. But it wasn't because what does he say in verse 6? You know. So that's number one. If this was something about something far, even the time texts weren't there, something far in their future, at best, it would be unintelligible and inapplicable to them. At worst, it would be what? Deceiving. When I grew up, I grew up in a particular tradition that said these, these adverbs like now and soon and any time, he told us that just to kind of keep the church uh, on edge, that they, that, that, that they would be ready at any time and, and I got to, recently I got to think about it. What do you call that? 
manipulation. Listen, God doesn't have to put a carrot on a stick to keep his church holy. We have to look at the text and say, what does the text say? The passage was not intended to unveil secrets to the, to the Thessalonian church in a far distant time. It would have been completely unintelligible to them at best. It would have been misleading, deceptive at worst. Paul appealed to what they already knew and about what was happening in their time. And, and we need to first interpret it that way, and then and only then can we apply it, which we will do in a couple weeks. So here's your handout. You take one and, and pass it back. Yeah, it's, this is value added. Oh, here. This is something I've been working on for some time, and um, it really arose out of a lot of our, our Wednesday night Bible studies because our Wednesday night Bible study, we, we found ourselves with a lot of conundrums, with a lot of things that, that, would, that would lead us to say, well, how can these things both be true? And, and I thought to myself, that is not, a, that is not an approach of faith. A faith says, if this is the word of God, how can they not both be true? How can they not both be true? Okay, so here, here's, um, here's what I want us to, to, to think through. I want us to think through. Does everybody have one, by the way? What, what I'm going to call faith-based interpretation. I'm going to call us to start believing God's word by faith. What that means is this, that I'm going to approach the biblical text and I am not going to have to have every interpretive question or conclusion ironed out before I believe the text before me. I'm going to believe it's true. Do you know why I believe Jesus rose again? Not because of all the evidence. Not because of the trilemma, Lord, liar, lunatic. Not because there's, you know, well, if they went to, you know, they couldn't have gone to the wrong tomb. If they went to the wrong tomb, that's not why we believe. Why do we believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because the Bible tells us. What if, there was, what if there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever that Jesus rose from the dead? Would you believe it? This is, what I'm, this is what I'm getting, pushing us towards. We don't believe these things because of evidence. Faith-based interpretation does not require historical validation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, well, I can't believe that this text is true because there's no historical evidence for it. What have we just done? What is a greater authority now than the Bible? His historical sources who are not inspired and not apostolic. By the way, let me just throw out another one. Okay, A lot of people date, date the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written in 95, 96 A.D. You know, you know what evidence they use for that? Nothing in the Bible. A quote, an abstract quote from a church father named Irenaeus who knew um, uh, another church father who knew Polycarp. And Polycarp, tradition tells us, was discipled by John. So they, we have this vague statement that's saying he saw the revelation of John in 95 A.D. Then no, nothing internal. There's no internal evidence. Just that. But this is the same Irenaeus who said that Jesus was 50 years old when he was crucified. You see, faith-based interpretation consistently maintains sola scriptura. So scripture only is our authority. It's our final authority. It's our ultimate authority. Not what so-and-so said. Not what history... Do you know how many times in the Old Testament... Archaeology, they found stuff that's valid. I think it was the Hittites. You could get, I don't, I'm not sure it was. They said the Hittites, there, there, was no, there, was no, uh, there was no evidence that the Hittites ever existed. And the Bible talks about Hittites. Well, the Bible's wrong. Well, lo and behold, they, they turn up some pottery shards and they find out that they did exist. That happens over and over again. But you know what? Even if they didn't turn up that shard, you know what we believe? We believe they existed. Why? The Bible tells us. In other words, faith-based interpretation is not required for historical validation. In fact, if, even if, if there were historical sources say that it didn't happen, and the Bible says it does, who do we go with? The Bible. 
What if my favorite commentator says something that the text doesn't say? Who do I go with? With the text. Now, over the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about how do we use how do we use secondary sources. By the way. External evidence is what we call secondary sources. They're like your study Bible stuff or commentaries or or history. These are what we call external evidences. They are useful at times and they serve a purpose, but they are secondary and they are adjunct. They are not primary. Internal evidence, the text is primary. Okay? The text is primary. All of these other things are secondary. And if they disagree with the Bible... We go with the Bible. Number two is, faith-based interpretation is not required on whether it makes sense to me or not. Then what is the authority? My reason. And my reason is flawed. My reason is marred by sin. And has your reason ever been wrong? Yeah, you bet. It doesn't need to make sense to me. Faith-based interpretation says, you know what, even though it doesn't make sense to me, even though I may not be able to explain it, even though there is no historical validation, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe, and I'm going to, take, I'm going to go wherever the text takes me. Some people said, what's, what's your position? What, what's, your, what's your label in eschatology? So I just go wherever the Bible takes me. Just go, where does the text lead me? We have got to get the place. Wherever the text leads us, that's where we'll go. And I, and I was driving with my wife, and you write this at your bottom, at the bottom of your page, and, and, and I, I, we were talking about this, and I said, we're gonna, I want to take the Bible at faith value. You can write that down. I take, I'm going to start taking the Bible. When I interpret it, I'm going to take it at faith value. I don't need historical validation. Now, there's a, there's a purpose for secondary external evidence. Secondary evidence is excellent to reinforce interpretation, never to drive or determine interpretation. I don't interpret the Bible based on its historical context. Because a lot of times my understanding of historical context is wrong. A lot of times what tradition has taught us about historical context is flat out wrong. But historical context, when it reinforces my interpretation, it's helpful. So I want you to take this, I want you to keep it in your Bible, and this is what I want you to do. So I want you to read this week, and I want you to pray and say, God, I want to start approaching your word at faith value. And I'm not going to wait to believe you until it makes sense to me, until I have all my questions. When you deal with predictive text, you answer one question, what happens? Seven others are pop up. You know what we call that? An opportunity to learn and to grow. Because now, now what are you going to do? Now you're going to explore those seven questions. We call that growth. We call that learning. How else do you learn? But I'm convinced that when we deal with the text before us by faith and believe it by faith, I'm not talking about contradictions. I'm not talking... We, we do the normal interpretive, contextual, grammatical study. We don't just go to the Bible and say, oh, I believe by faith, whatever I mean, want it to mean. We do our we do due diligence, we study it, but at, at the end of the day, I believe it, and I am firmly convinced that when we do that, the Bible will unlock to us, and we will gain new insights. And a lot of our questions will, in fact, be answered, as opposed to when we go to it, and we, if I'm going to be an error, I want to be an error by saying, God, I believe by faith what you said. Not that I had to alter it in order to make myself feel better or make it fit with what my tradition teaches, but, but I believe by faith. I can't understand it. I can't explain it, but I believe it. And I think that probably more times than not, understanding will come later. I'm sure you've experienced some other things you've learned about God and His Word. Where at first you accepted it, you believed it, and you really didn't understand all of it, but in time you did. So now we're going to get into the what's. We're going to get into the meat of Second Thessalonians. But we have to do it in context. And the context is, from Paul's perspective... 
when Paul wrote this letter, he was talking about what was happening then. And let's see what we don't what we can't find out if we approach this from a faith-based interpretation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the patience of your people, both in terms of time and maybe even discomfort. Uh, Father, I pray that as we, um, as we embark in this study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that we would be, um, we would, we would be built up and, and we would be once again reminded of your sovereignty and, and your predictions who, who always come true. And, Father, what that means to us in our lives and the application and, and, and what that means to us. Father, as, as this gradually unfolds, I pray that you would, you would build faith in us and belief in your word and belief that what you've said is true. Father, thank you that you have allowed us to know and understand our Bibles, that it interprets itself. That yes, there are some difficult passages. Yes, there's a place and time for, for outside help. But it is secondary. It's adjunct. God, give your people the confidence and the excitement that they can understand your word. And they can understand it accurately. And that we approach it by faith. Oh God, I pray that this week, as we study the word, that you would uh, bring new insight, new illumination, God, help unlock this book that for so many of us is locked and boring. Make it come alive, but it will only come alive as we approach it by faith. We thank you for Christ again, who died for us and rose again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?